Grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to just look at verse 15 this morning. I'm going to come back and just spend a little time on verse 15. If you did not get a set of notes on the way in, I think you're going to want to get that, uh, if nothing else, for the, for the bookmark that we have for you. But uh, we're going to be using our notes a lot this morning. And so if you did not get the notes, raise your hand and somebody from the Connections team uh, will find you and they will, get you, they will get you hooked up. While we're doing that, um, I'll go ahead and lead us in prayer and then we're going to get to work this morning. Father, Lord, we just give you thanks and praise that we can come together this way where we can study where we can learn, God, where we can, um, Lord, be shored up in the business and the work of rightly dividing your word. Lord, I pray for your blessing over our individual lives, our individual study. Lord, that these would be fruitful, profitable times. Lord, that we would truly see what your Bible says, to see what your word says, but also how to apply it to our lives, how to help other people do the same. And so, Lord, I know false teaching abounds, and I just pray for protection. Lord, help us to recognize error because we know the truth. Lord, you do all things well, and so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us this morning in Jesus' name. Father, if there's anyone here today that does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that today they just, you know, everything that they see, everything that they hear, uh, that it would all fall out to convincing them, convicting them that their sin must be dealt with at the cross of Calvary, that today truly would be for them the day of salvation. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 says to, this is the verse in your Bible that commands you to study your Bible. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Why? Well, you're rightly dividing the word of truth. Last time we were together, we looked at verses 14 through 18, and we saw Hymenaeus and Philetus, and we found out that they were overthrowing the faith of some. And you know what Hymenaeus and Philetus' problem was? The Bible says that concerning the truth, they've erred. I mean, look at it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. What they're teaching is subverting the hearers. They're not rightly dividing the word of truth. It's profane and vain babblings. It's increasing God's people's ungodliness. And so what happens, these guys are teaching that they've missed the resurrection. Now you're just slated for judgment and damnation. And so God's people are like, well, better get what I want out of this life and eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. I just tended it. It, it produced more ungodliness. The answer is verse 15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is the key to not being ashamed when you stand before your creator, when you stand before the living word himself, will you be ashamed or will you have done right by his Bible? Rightly dividing the word of truth means that you have to know the word, right? You have to know God's word for yourself. I made this point last week, I'll make it again. Some of you, you're just relying on what you heard. 
You don't know what the Bible teaches. You don't know how to rightly divide it. You just assume you know because of what somebody's told you. And you've never taken the time to study it out for yourself. You've never taken the time to be Berean so that you can ensure that you know exactly what the Bible is saying to man today. You don't know God's Word for yourself, and as such, when false doctrine is targeted at you, you're vulnerable to attack. With the internet today, I mean, there's some good teachers, some good preachers on the internet, but for everyone that's a good one, there's a hundred more heretics. The attack is coming. The false teaching, will you recognize it when you hear it? Or are you a workman that needs not to be ashamed because you know God's Word to the point that no teacher of false doctrine can overthrow you? Look at the next chapter, 2 Timothy 3, the Bible warns us about the false teachers that are coming. Verse 1 says, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. How many know that we're in the last days now? We are in the last of the last days. And these are perilous times. Well, how are they perilous? Well, he explains. For men, they're not going to live Bible. They're not going to live for God. They're going to live for themselves. Look at this. Verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Here it is, verse 5, and having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. Here it is, verse 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're always studying, but they're not rightly dividing. <laughs> ever learning, never getting to the right conclusion. We get an example in verse 8. Now, as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these, these false teachers. These also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. No wonder their teaching overthrows the faith of some. They're overthrown in the faith themselves. And now they're trying to teach you the Bible. So are you ready? Because you are going to be confronted with false teaching. I can guarantee it. And I wonder if you'll catch it. Will you be tripped up concerning correct Bible doctrine or not? 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 parallels 2 Timothy 3 or 2 verse 15. Uh, you're to set apart, right? You are to sanctify. 1 Peter chapter 3 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. What does that look like? And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So you have to study to be ready in order to say what's correct doctrinally. I mean, if you're going to be ready, that means you're going to study. You're ready if you've studied. Now, you don't get to study just any old way that you want. You have to rightly divide the word of truth, or you will wrongly divide the word of truth, and you'll end up in doctrinal error. But you want to work. You want to study in order to get your Bible down. You want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. This is what we want to try. We're going to endeavor to do that here this morning in our time today. We're going to begin to 
just take the steps in rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, We want to do this so that you have a framework to study and labor in the word on your own, uh, so that you might be able to say with the Apostle Paul, right, that you're able to declare all the counsel of God. And so, let's do that this morning. As I was studying this out, how to approach this, this is really a rabbit trail, uh, but bear with me. It's off subject, but as I was preparing today, I found this uh, insight in my study of today's topic, and I thought it was super cool. So, I, I just wanted to share something with you that's hidden to most believers today. Check out Leviticus 19, verse 19. God says to His people, ye shall keep my statutes. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. Now compare that with Deuteronomy 22 verse 11. Thou shalt not wear a garment of divers sorts, various sorts. Here's the example, as woolen and linen together. So they couldn't wear mixed fabrics. And the reason for that is that they were to be a peculiar people. They they weren't to live their lives like the pagan nations around them. They were to be separate unto the Lord. And so what they wore was to picture what was true of them socially and religiously, spiritually. An unmixed, unmingled garment. It was whole. It had complete integrity. Well, that pictures… What Israel did, right, what they wore, that pictures for us the white robes of righteousness that the bride of Christ will wear when Jesus comes into His kingdom. It will be a a garment of single source. We will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So God help us. We've missed the boat on this one. How many of you this morning are wearing cotton polyester blends this morning? Let me just get a show of hands. God help us, we're, we're, we're wearing mixed fabrics. We got to start living right, people. And so this Tuesday night, we're going to have a clothes burning. Out in the parking lot, we're going to build a big bonfire. Who's in? How many will repent with me this morning? We'll just burn these mixed fabrics. Okay, now a few of you got tripped up. The rest of you, why not? Why not? I mean, did I just teach you wrong? Oh, was that the law? And we're living under grace? Oh, I guess I'm I'm getting mixed up in my Bible. I don't suppose I could talk any of you into a time of offering burnt sacrifice this Saturday. We keep that bonfire going and sacrifice some sheep and some rams and some… Has anybody got some rams and bullocks that they could give us to offer to the Lord? Anyone? 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 Okay. I warned you. I told you I might be captured by some evil organization and be replaced by my evil clone and begin to teach you false doctrine, all with the goal of subverting you in order to overthrow your faith in Christ. So how did I get this kooky? What happened? What went wrong? By the way, in using this illustration, I was a little nervous about it. I was afraid in both services I might be struck by lightning inside this building, <laughs> teaching wrong. How did I get kooky? How did I, how did I get off onto that wrong rabbit trail? Why well, didn't rightly divide the Scriptures? Okay, so I want you to, 
to look at your handout, not the, not the uh, chart of the Bible, but your regular handout with your blanks. Turn it over on the back, and what we have here is a description. It's a chart that describes for you uh, seven different ways that God has dealt with man throughout biblical human history. This is a, a representation of a very standard, a very classic view of dispensationalism. It's broken down into seven different ages, seven different time periods where <clears throat> how God relates to man in one age, one dispensation is different to how he represents or how he deals with man in another dispensation. For example, in the Garden of Eden, that's the first dispensation. It's the dispensation of innocence or the Edenic dispensation. And there, in order to stay in right relationship, man was created in right relationship with God. He doesn't have a sin nature. In order to stay in right relationship with God, he has to make sure that he doesn't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, who here today is worried about eating the wrong fruit? I mean, that ship has already sailed. We don't worry about staying right with God by making sure we're eating the right fruit. Why? We understand that it was different in the garden than it is today. Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Everybody gets that? In each of these ages, you're going to see a shift in how God deals with man. As a matter of fact, okay, how do we know, you know, pull out this chart. Look at this one. This has just got your Bible. It's, it's titled, The Word of God. It's in color. And it outlines for you your Old and New Testaments. We put the Old Testament on one side, New Testament on the other, because that is your biggest ob obvious division in your Bible. So how do I know that there has to be a division? The way that God deals with man in the Old Testament is different to how He's dealing with man in the New Testament. How do I know? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus described it this way in Matthew 26, 28. He says, this is my blood of the New Testament, which was shed for many for the remission of sins. So it's the Last Supper, and they break the bed, break the bed, break the bed, I can't say it, break the bread. <laughs> they break the bread, they pass it out. Jesus like, this pictures, right? This represents my body. It's broken for you. Christ bore in his body our sin to the cross of Calvary. It was broken over our sin. The cup, take this cup, what is it? In Matthew 26, 28, he says it's the blood of the New Testament. It pictures my shed blood, the blood that will be shed for you for the remission of sin. But notice, he calls it the blood of the New Testament. And Hebrews chapter 9 tells you why. And it gives, in, in understanding this concept, it shows you why there's this big division in your Bible. Why the Old Testament is different than the New. Look at Hebrews 9, let's pick it up in verse 15. And for this cause, he is Jesus. For this cause, Jesus is the mediator of a new testament. If there's a new testament, that means there must be a, an old testament. That's right. So he's the mediator of the new testament by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament... They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. What are we talking about here? What's being described? 
a last will and testament. You know, you, many times people will do that today. They want to they say what will happen after their demise, and they will put down a last will and testament that only goes into effect after they die. Is everybody with me on that? In other words, you don't inherit your parents' fortune or few meager possessions until after they pass. Okay, so look at verse 16 again. Where a testament is, this is the principle, if you're going to find a testament, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Here it's not called the Old Testament, it's called the First Testament. For when Moses had spoken every precept unto all people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So in the Old Testament, and again, look at this chart on the back of your notes, these seven dispensations. You've got the Edenic dispensation, you've got the, you've got the Adamic dispensation, this would be uh, the descendants of Adam, how God dealt with them, then the age of Noah, then you've got the Abrahamic right, the age, the dispensation of the patriarchs, and then it's with the Mosaic dispensation. That's where the law was given. This, this that is being described here in Hebrews chapter 9, all the way through your Bible, it takes place right here in human history. Uh, what I did on my notes is I drew a little down arrow between Abrahamic and Mosaic, and I just put the word Old Testament, OT. And at the end of the Mo- Old Testament, We've got the death of another testator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so that begins our New Testament, and then I wrote Hebrews 9, 15 through 22 over it to explain it. Okay, so now I've got that in my cheat sheet. I've got that in my notes. If there's a testament, it requires the shed blood of the testator. In the Old Testament, Moses doesn't die. It's not his blood that's shed to enjoin God's people to this testament with the Lord. No, it's the blood of bulls, right? It is the blood of sacrificial animals. It's the blood of calves and goats. Why? Well, because that's how the Old Testament works. There is a substitute. The wages of sin has always been death. But rather than seeing God's people killed for their sin, they were able to bring a sacrifice. And the shed blood of bulls, it didn't wash away sin, but it covered it before God. Why? Well, because the Lamb of God had not yet come to take away the sin of the world. That comes after the age of the law and the age of grace. That's the dispensation of grace. We call it the church age. That goes into effect with the death of the second Moses, that prophet, right? This is the one that we listen to. He is the one that shed his blood for the remission of our sin. So technically… Think about it this way. If you look at uh, your colored chart and you go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, that's where I get water from. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's why. Okay. 
all the way up to the crucifixion. That's under the age or the dispensation of the law. It's not the age of grace. People will read the Gospels and they think everything in the Gospels applies to the church today. A lot of what you're seeing, you're seeing because people are operating, they're speaking in light of being under the law. You can't forget that. It's with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's with His crucifixion, it's with His shed blood that the New Testament now comes into effect. It comes with the death of the testator, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how it works. So now in Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus comes, He says, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Christ came because we couldn't keep the law. He came, he's the only one that could. He kept all of the law because He is the sinless, infinite God. Now He is qualified. He is sufficient to pay the price of the sins of humanity, to deal with the sins of Adam's race. Christ now, I don't have to keep the law in order to have right relationship with God. Jesus kept it for me. Jesus already fulfilled the law on my behalf. It's not my job to fulfill the law. Jesus did it all. He did all of it. He did it for me. Now we live in the age of grace. And so very clearly, in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, the Bible says, sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You're not under the law, but under grace. Oh, thank God for our testator, amen, <laughs> to not be under the law. Any born-again Christian ought to be able to see that basic division in their Bible, law versus grace, but so many don't, and they end up in doctrinal heresy. They, oh yeah, I get saved through the finished work of Christ at Calvary, but I keep my right relationship with God through keeping the feasts. I have to keep the Sabbath. I have to wear unmixed garments. I mean, just crazy stuff like that. If you don't rightly divide your Bible, you'll end up misapplying its truth, and you'll end up in doctrinal error. Almost every major false teaching that comes from the Bible is a result of failure in this area. You got to be careful when you handle the Word of God. So get this down in your notes. When you approach the Word of God, you got to remember, it doesn't just contain the words of God, it is the Word of God. Every page, from cover to cover, it doesn't… In this book, we don't have some truths and insights from God. Those are there, by the way. It's from cover to cover, it's insight and truth of God. But it's more than that. It's the very Word of God Himself. So you got to remember that God's Word now contains actually the words of God. You will see places in the Bible where God is speaking. But it also includes the words of Satan, demons, angels, and man, men both good and bad, men both right and wrong. God captures that and He records it in His Word. It's there for your instruction and edification. So you have to differentiate. You got to make, make out the differences as you study the Scripture. You got to understand what God includes in the Bible and why He does it. For the example, on one hand, the Bible says God is truth, He can't lie. On the other hand, the Bible reveals that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44. So, so you know, when you, anytime you see God speaking, take it at face value. It says what it means, it means what it says. When Satan is speaking, even when he's telling the truth, he's telling the truth in order to get you to fall for a lie. 
And Satan includes that. Man is natural. He's carnal. So therefore, he doesn't always speak the truth. So you got to pay attention. Who is saying what? When God puts an example of the wrong sayings of Satan or man in his word, he does that so you know not to follow that example. When he puts the actions, wrong actions of God's people in your Bible, those things are written to be in samples for you, to know what to do, what not to do. You don't want to repeat the mistakes of history. The second very important rule is to understand to whom God is speaking. Is God speaking to the nation of Israel, to the Gentile lost world, to the church? Is it just to some man in uh, in particular or in general? Or is God speaking to an individual? You got to pay attention. Who is saying what to whom? If you, don't know that, if you don't know who is being spoken to, you'll misapply the truth that's contained for you in a portion of God's Word. Uh, Tony Godfrey put together a bookmark. He did a great job, and so we've got that printed off for you. It has on the front side the 16 principles of Bible study. We teach this in Foundations 2 and 3. You will, you will, we will go through this in depth with you, but that's there to remind you uh, of the, the principles of Bible study, what you have to keep in mind as you study God's Word for yourself. On the back, there's a timeline of biblical events, and what he did is he shows where each dispensation starts, where each dispensation begins on this timeline of biblical human history. Uh, it will help you to recognize who is God speaking to at what time, when in biblical human history. You don't want to misapply truth that's contained in one portion of God's Word and misapplied in another. Here's the principle. You want to get this down. All of the Bible is written for you. All of it. Genesis to Revelation, the Apostle Paul himself said, all Scripture is profitable for what? For doctrine. Remember what he said in Acts? I've, I've not failed. I, I've not… I've not shunned, you know, I haven't, I didn't drop the ball in declaring the whole counsel of God's Word to you. All of the Bible is for you. It's the Apostle Paul that says, if any man obey not wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know what you can know about that man? He doesn't know nothing, right? Avoid him. All the Bible is for you, but not all of it is written specifically to you as the Gentile bride of Christ. It's the Pauline epistles that are written to the church and for the church age. It's the Pauline epistles that will keep us straight doctrinally. We can apply doctrine from Genesis to Revelation. People are like, this is the local church. Why aren't we just preaching Pauline epistles? Why did we preach through the book of Genesis? Because you're going to find out, you're going to see, you're going to know a, you're going to know a heap ton about Jesus from the book of Genesis. You need it. All Scripture is profitable for doctrine. All the Bible's for you, but it's not all written to you. And if you take something that God promised to another group in another age and try to smash that onto the church, you'll end up making a mess. I use this example from time to time. Let's say you're back in elementary school. No, let's make it junior high. That's when the hormones start rolling weird. You're in junior high. And you see Lisa put a note on Johnny's desk while he's away. And you're obsessed with Lisa. And you're curious. So you grab the note and you look at it. 
and you find that the note describes Lisa's feelings for Johnny. He's so handsome. He's so funny. She thinks he's a stud. Says she'd like to meet him after class behind the school for some hugging and some kissing. Well, again, you're obsessed with Lisa. You think she's a very beautiful girl. And you would like to get in on that hugging and kissing action. And so you don't let Johnny see the note. You keep it for yourself, this note that was not intended for you. And then at the appointed time, you show up for the loving. Now, when you pucker up, how are you going to get smacked? Are Lisa's sweet lips going to caress yours? No, she's going to punch you right in the mouth. (laughs) Why? You know why you got smacked? With her fists, not her lips. You know why? Because your name is Ralph. That's why. The letter wasn't written to you. It was written to Johnny. Now, if you'd have been smart, you'd have known that there was no way somebody as fine as Lisa would ever be interested in locking lips with you. (laughs) I know she wanted some, I know she wanted some love and it was right there in the note. Not with you. The letter wasn't written to you, but the information could be very useful for you. You could sell tickets to the rest of the class. They could have watched the show. You could have showed up and enjoyed catcalling the event, whatever. But this is what so many false teachers do today. They try to steal God's kisses for the nation of Israel, and they try to apply it to the church. And so now you have to keep the Sabbath in order to keep a right relationship with God. You have to keep the feasts in order to keep a right relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand to whom God is speaking before you apply it to your life, or else you'll be burning your blended fabrics, fabrics, right? You don't want to burn your blended fabrics. Those cost good money. You got to wear them out. You got to understand your Bible. Who is, in each place that you're at as you're studying, who is this passage written to? Why was it written? What's accomplished in each book? And so what I want to do with the rest of our time here this morning is I want to invite you to look at this chart of the Bible. We'll start with the Old Testament. It's titled The Word of God. And I just want to walk you through your Bible with the goal of making sure you've got an introduction to right division. Your Old Testament, that's Genesis through the book of Malachi. The Old Testament or the First Testament. Uh, You'll see it referred to in your Bible as the Law and the Prophets. It's written to the nation of Israel, but it is still written for our edification. We need to know it. We need to study it. We need to teach it because, you know, think about it this way. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the disciples need insight, what does Jesus do? Well, He teaches them all things about Himself, concerning Himself. He walks them through the law and the prophets, and He shows them what they need to know from the first or the Old Testament. Well, we need to follow His example. We have to do the same. Now, the Old Testament breaks down into four basic sections, or or five. Uh, You can do it either way. The prophets themselves, Isaiah to Malachi, break down into two different subcategories, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But uh, let's walk through the books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy, these are the books of the law. 
These are the books of the law. It's known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a name that comes from the Greek meaning five and volume. It's the five volume book, five volume books of the law. Uh, It was written by Moses and it was given to Israel. Now the second section in your Bible includes 12 books called the historical books. This is Joshua through Esther. Joshua through Esther. These these books contain Israel's history from the time of the conquest of Canaan under Joshua uh, to the period of the Babylonian exile and the building of the temple. That's your history of the nation of Israel. The third section is called the books of wisdom, the books of poetry and wisdom. That's Job through Song of Solomon. But then the fourth section of your Old Testament, this is where the prophetic books are. They run from Isaiah to Malachi, and they they themselves break down into two major sections. Uh, They will be called the major and the minor prophets. Uh, The major prophets, that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're the longer books of prophecy. And then the minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi, they're shorter These are your shorter books of prophecy. Now they, in each section, major and minor prophets, they break down into two camps. You've got the pre-exile, pre-exilic books. These are the books that were written when Israel is whoring after other gods. They're, they're They're involved in demonic worship and God's warning them. He's warning them of judgment to come. If you don't cut this out, You're going to be taken out of your land. You're going to be taken into exile. Okay, those are the pre-exilic books. And then the post-exilic books are after the exile, once Israel is taken into captivity. Same thing um, both with the the major and the minor prophets. They break down into pre- and post-exilic books. All right, now... Let's look at the New Testament. Flip it over, flip your page over. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the Gospels. They tell the story of the life and death and resurrection of Christ. They bridge now for you the transition from the Old Testament to the New, from the first to the second. Because remember, it's by the death of the testator that the New Testament comes into play. And so again, I mentioned this before, I'll say it again. When you're reading in the Gospels, you're reading about events that are taking place under the dispensation of the law. And that's why people are responding the way that they're responding. It's not the age of grace yet because that, that, that can't start until after Calvary. Is everybody with me on that? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are transitional books. They transition you and your study from the Old Testament economy to the new, from the age of law to the age of grace. The second section, just like the first testament, in the second testament, the second section is a section on history. Acts is the the history of the early church, and it's transitional as well. It bridges the gap from, in the beginning of Acts, the believers in Jesus Christ are entirely Jewish. There's no Gentile. There's no understanding of the mystery body of Christ. Nobody's called a Christian yet. It is a purely Jewish, mostly Judean church, okay? 
Uh, it is Jewish only. And in Acts, in the book of Acts, you see a transition from the gospel starting in Jerusalem and ultimately going to the uttermost. It's interesting. Notice the parallel in your Bible. In the Old Testament, you've got the first five books. It's the giving of the Word of God. It's the giving of the law. In your New Testament, the first, the first four books is the giving of the living Word of God. It's the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. After the giving of the Word comes a time or, a, or an accounting of history. So you see that in the Old Testament and in the New. Now, the, the third section in your New Testament, this is Romans through Philemon. God gave this doctrinal insight to the Apostle Paul for the church. They're called the Pauline Epistles. And so you want to get this down. It's through the revealed truth of the Pauline Epistles that the New Testament believer interprets, and listen to me, you interpret and apply the whole of God's Word to your life. All Scripture is profitable for teaching you. It's profitable for doctrine. From Genesis to Revelation, there will be truth for you to apply to your life. But you better do it through the, 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 the lens. You ought to do it through the insight that comes through the Pauline epistles. Don't let any other area of your Bible trip you up and cause you to overturn what's very clearly, very plainly, very straightforwardly put forth in the Pauline epistles. Nothing will get you off track quicker than if you take Old Testament principles and try to apply them directly to your life without Paul's help. You'll end up under the law and you'll end up a heretic. You'll end up ashamed because you didn't rightly divide the word of truth. Now the fourth section, some people will say uh, they'll add revelation to the general epistles, that's more rare, but typically. Uh, the fourth section is described this way, Hebrews through Jude, those are the general epistles. And these include the letters to the Hebrew Christian in the early church, right? Hebrews is to the Hebrew Christian, the Hebrew believer in the early church. And then you've got the general ep epistles. These have a historic application to the church, but you need to know from, from James all the way through Revelation, there's a tribulation context. There will be a tribulation application in those scriptures. And why do I say that? I'll give you the example. It doesn't get more clear than in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you can be a believer. Okay, let's get our timeline straight. The next event prophetically, right, in terms of biblical history as it unfolds, the next thing that has to happen prophetically is the rapture of the church. Sometime after the rapture of the church, the the Antichrist will broker a seven-year peace treaty with Israel and the surrounding nations. So there'll be peace in our time. And in the middle of that peace treaty, he breaks it. The Antichrist is revealed. And then he goes full court press on all of humanity. And at the end of the day, you're going to take the mark of the beast or you're going to be killed. You're going to worship him as your God or you're going to be murdered. Okay, a lot of pressure. Well, the Bible talks about this time of tribulation as being a time of great revival. Um, and sure enough, you look, at that, you look at that great company that's in heaven, it's, a, it's so many people that nobody can number them. It's such a great multitude. Those are the people that die for their faith during the time of great tribulation. Okay, so what you'll have 
during the time of tribulation is you'll have some people that'll say, oh no, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and they've asked him into their heart, okay? I got Jesus in my life, I got Jesus in my heart. But then when the Antichrist says, you're gonna take this mark or you can't buy or sell, you're gonna take this mark, you're gonna worship me, or we're gonna remove you from the equation. We're gonna remove you from the planet. We're gonna erase you. That's a whole lot of pressure. And for those that cave, and they take the mark of the beast in Revelation chapter 13, read chapter 14. Everyone that takes the mark of the beast, no matter what they say about Jesus, everyone that takes the mark of the beast, they go to hell. They spend eternity in hell with the devil. No way around it. So there's this person. Oh, no, I'm, I'm with God. Jesus is Lord. But then they take the mark of the beast. Oh, how do I undo this? You can't. Hebrews 6 will show you that, right? Christ isn't going to be crucified afresh for that sin. Well, I thought Jesus died for all my sins. Yeah, you're in the church age. But for everyone that takes the mark of the beast, there's no coming back. This is why in the general epistles you'll see phrases like, and concepts like, your need to endure to the end. In other words, the works that are in your life need to match your faith. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Guess what? I don't have to endure to the end. Jesus endured everything on my behalf. All I have to be is in the person of Christ. I don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. I'm going to be, man, I'm going to be loving my retirement plan in heaven, right? I'm, I'm, I'll be in my father's house when that whole agenda is unfolding. I don't have to worry about that. I'm in the church age. I'm in the age of grace. It's not of works. Nobody's going to get to heaven bragging about how awesome they were. God had to let them in because they were so good. No, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. The last section is the book of Revelation, and that is just like in your Old Testament, the last section is a section of pure prophecy. It gives information concerning the end time of the Great Tribulation and the end, of, I mean, it, it, and it introduces the, the day of the Lord, it describes the millennial reign of Christ, and then ultimately the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so as you study your New Testament, remember the Gospels, particularly the book of Matthew, these are transitional books, especially Matthew. Matthew starts with a pure Israel in the land receiving her king focus. We describe it uh, in the Bible, it's called a kingdom of heaven, right? It's a kingdom of heaven focus. But by the end, what's he saying? He's got a kingdom of God focus. He's sending the disciples to go into all the world preaching the gospel. Same thing in the book of Acts. It's another transitional book. Nothing happens the same way twice in the book of Acts. How do you get the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? <laughs> Baptize, baptism, laying on of hands, the hearing of faith. I mean, it's, it's just different every time. What's well, a time of transition? But in terms of the Gentile bride of Christ, what do we find in the Pauline epistles? How did you get the Holy Spirit. It was through the hearing of faith, wasn't it? The moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt and sealed your life until the day Christ comes back for you. You got to remember that. People get, I mean, I'll just tell you, where people really get messed up doctrinally, it'll be in Matthew, Acts, Hebrews, and Revelation. 
They'll get messed up because they don't understand. They're transitional books. Revelation transitions in the day of the Lord, the millennial reign of Christ. And it brings you all the way through to the destruction of creation and then the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, real quick, on the back of your handout, these seven dispensations, we give you basically the way dispensate, this is the way you'll see the pattern of dispensational theology working out in your Bible. There'll be a chief steward, and he will be accused of wasting his master's good. He will fail in his stewardship. He'll be fired, and then something replaces him, and then the paradigm changes, okay? So with Adam, the failure was eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now his children are responsible to do good. They're to follow their conscience. After that, because they fail, God has to hit the reset on the human genome with Moses. So we've got a global flood. So we have a, 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 a dispensation, we call it the the age of government or the Noahic dispensation. Uh, you see the beginning of the nations with Noah. And then Abraham, uh, he is called out of those nations. This starts the dispensation or age of promise or the patriarchs. And then with Moses, we see the giving of the law. With the church age, the giving of grace. And then the millennial reign, the rule of Christ. And so that just sums up for you very quickly how your Bible will divide out for you. Now, believe it or not, we started off slow this week. We're going to need to, we needed to see how, mainly we needed to see the need to rightly divide, and then we wanted to introduce you and how you will rightly divide the word of truth. But next week, I need you to come with your game face, all right? Don't come to church next week all lazy. Oh, just entertain me, pastor. I'm just going to sit here and veg out. No. You need, to, you need to come ready to write, quick to think, and willing to apply. It's going to get deep, and it's going to come at you fast. And I don't want to lose anyone, so you got you to come next week with your game face. Get on the bus, boys and girls. It's time to go to school, right? That's got to be the attitude. And we come back to our study this next week. I'd like us to bow our heads. I'd like us to humble ourselves before the Lord right now. We're going to close with some prayer and then some worship. Maybe you're here today and you're new to all of this focus that we're putting on the Bible. But now you recognize you need to, you need to know God's Word for yourself. You need to be discipled. You need to follow as a disciple of Christ. How many would say, Pastor, pray for me? I recognize that. I need to quit interacting passively with my Bible, and I need to study to show myself approved. Would you pray for me as I begin this endeavor? Can I see your hands? Yep. Okay. Anybody else? Okay. So there's several. That's good. You want to get on the path to growth. You want to get accountable in your growth in Scripture. How many would say, Pastor, pray for me? You didn't, I, I didn't learn one new thing today. I knew all of this already, but I'm not helping others to know it. I'm not discipling what I'm doing with my life, it isn't aiding, it's not helping us to win souls and make disciples, and I want to support that. Would you pray for me? Can I see your hands? All right, will do. And then how many would say, Pastor, pray for me? I don't have Christ in my life. I need to be saved. Would you pray for me? Yes, sir.
Anybody else? Please pray for me. I don't know Christ as my Lord and Savior. I need to be born again. I need to be saved. Would you pray for me? Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay. Anybody else? Please pray for me. I need Jesus in my life. All right, I'm going to pray. And then I, if God's dealing with you, I want you to get accountable, right? If it's to get on the path to growth, come on, we'll get you started. We'll get you signed up for the cost of discipleship class. If you need to be saved, if you need to know that God is your Father and that you've been reconciled to Him through the shed blood of Christ, we'll, we'll open the Bible with you and we'll show you how you can know that you're born again. All right, I'm going to pray and then you come. We want to help you. Father, we come to you now again in Jesus' name. And Lord, thank you for our time and your word. Lord, for those that recognize their need to begin to study, to show themselves approved, Lord, we pray that you'd bless them in the process. You'd bless them in their progress. Lord, let those times of study be rich. And Lord, help them to recognize that you set it up in Ephesians 4, that we learn your word uh, in the context of other believers building us up in our faith, keeping us straight in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that they would count the cost of discipleship and then move forward with an older brother or sister in Christ that will help them to stay on track. At the same time, I pray for those that, that they're not helping us in the work of the ministry that, Lord, that they would engage, they would begin to labor with us. Lord, you want to use them to help a younger brother or sister to move forward in faith. And so I pray that they would, they would come back from being AWOL and that they would they'd get back in the trenches with us. And then for the two gentlemen that raised their hand, they're not sure that they're saved. Lord, I know your word says that today is the day of salvation. You've given us the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his finished work at Calvary. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to work to earn forgiveness. We don't have to work to earn your approval, your acceptance. Christ did all of that for us. We just need to humble ourselves and call on him for mercy and forgiveness and salvation. Lord, you are God. We're your creation. Have your way with us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.